0: Good morning. It's always good to see you. Now that you're sitting, I'm going to ask you to stand for as, you're a, as you are able for the reading of God's Word. It's a shorter passage this morning. Let's read together. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? By the way, you probably drew the conclusion that I did not go to Puerto Rico since I'm here. Uh, wisdom uh, ruled the day in terms of the back issues I've been having. Today is a better day. Um, the week was pretty, pretty um, reassuring that I made the right decision throughout the week. But thank you for your prayers. How many of you are familiar with uh, the name Francis Schaefer? Still of hands, good number of you. We have the Francis Schaeffer Institute over at Covenant Seminary. Uh, Francis Schaeffer was one of the one of the foremost uh, evangelical thinkers um, in the 20th century. One of his greatest concerns was what he observed as being the decline of of culture and uh, the values that were basically being undermined by relativism. Probably his foremost book on the subject was titled with the question, How Should We Then Live? And he was addressing the book to Christians. In looking at culture, it's often tempting for believers to point a long judgmental finger at the world and point out why they are so corrupt, why society is so degraded, and yet God has always put the burden of responsibility on his own people, and that's what Francis Schaefer did in this book as well. How should we then live was the question. It was written in the 70s, back when I was in college, and the questions that he posed then are probably even more pertinent in the days in which we live today. As Peter begins to wrap up his second epistle, he essentially asks the exact same question. How should we, the people of God, then live? Or as he puts it, what sort of people ought you to be? It's a great question. It's a great question. And this morning we're going to find out how Peter for his first readers and how the Holy Spirit would answer that question for us. First of all, he would answer it by saying that we need to be people who are weighing how we spend our days. You need to weigh how you spend your days. Verse 11, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? That's a weighing question. You're weighing the question, what sort of person am I I now? And what sort of person would God call me to be in light of the fact that all of these things are going to be dissolved? Now let's take that sentence and break it down into two parts. The part before the comma and then the part after the comma. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, which will occur, as Peter tells us, as does the rest of Scripture, with the coming of the day of God or the day of the Lord. Peter uses those two terms synonymously. He has said in chapter 3, verse 7, but by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And then verse 12, the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. He's referring to the end of the world as we know it today. I find it somewhat amusing that some people are obsessed with saving our planet, not knowing the prognosis for our planet spelled out by the creator of our planet himself. Now, don't misunderstand me. Don't misquote me. We should be good stewards of the resources that God has given us. But don't you find it somewhat ironic that we're trying to save that which is going to be completely destroyed and transformed into something brand new? We know that. Jesus told his disciples, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So God's words will never pass away, but The heavens and the earth will. Now, that idea wasn't new with Jesus. You find it in the Old Testament. Psalm 102, of old, you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. Malachi chapter three. Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire. In other words, refining the gold, take the dross out of the gold. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, The sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Or Joel chapter 2. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So you've got, the, again, the contrast of those who don't know the Lord versus those who do. Those who have been declared righteous versus those who continue in unrighteousness. Then the, the New Testament, 1 Thessalonians 5, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While well, people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. 2 Thessalonians 1 When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And he continues. So you can take all of those scriptures and others, and you can summarize several things about the day of the Lord first of all the highlight of the day of the Lord or the day of the coming of God is going to be exactly that the coming of our Lord Jesus back to the planet it's going to be very different than his first coming very different secondly for unbelievers it will be unexpected like a thief breaking into your house and it will bring destruction it will be a terrible day for those who don't know the Lord. And then thirdly, for those who are watching, who are awake, anticipating Christ's coming, for the people of God, doing the work given to them by God, it's going to be a great day. It's going to bring deliverance and rescue and salvation for those who love His appearing. Now friends, I would suggest to you again this week, as I think I did last week, I don't think we think on these things nearly enough. Peter says, since all these things will be dissolved. In other words, since we've been given a preview of what's coming, how should we then live? Or how about this image? We've got Hannah and Shane back from Hawaii. Imagine a homeowner on the big island a couple weeks ago saying to his wife, you know, honey, since we know that we're right in the path of the lava flow of Mount Kilauea, I don't know, I still think we should continue with our plans to remodel the kitchen and put a pool in the backyard. I mean, the workers are already scheduled to come, and I'd hate to have to reschedule. Probably not. You see, when you know something major is going to happen, it alters your priorities. When you know something cataclysmic is going to happen, it alters your priorities as to what's really important. You change your plans. Chances are good for that homeowner, the marble countertops would melt, the kitchen cabinets would be charred wood, and a short time after that, it would all be gone. Now, what does that mean for us? Well, it does not mean that we quit our jobs and move to Montana and join a commune where we spend our days gazing at the clouds. That's not what Peter's talking about. It does mean that we should weigh how we spend our days that God has given us. That we continue to do the work that God has assigned to each one of us. That each one of us fulfills our calling. And yes, you have a calling just as I have a calling. That you fulfill your calling to the glory of God with a greater sense of purpose because you know that these things are going to be dissolved. So Peter is saying, we've been given the long-range forecast for planet Earth as we now know it, so that we can be all the wiser in how we invest our time and our resources and our energies what we do with our relationships and so Peter asked after that comma what sort of people ought you to be what a penetrating question that is what sort of men what sort of man ought you to be ladies what sort of woman ought you to be What sort of spouse, what sort of parent, what sort of neighbor, what sort of single adult, what sort of friend, what sort of believer in Jesus, what sort of follower of Christ ought you to be? You know, when you're reading your Bible, you don't want to jump over little words that you don't think are all that important, like the word ought. Definition of ought, used to express duty Or moral obligation. Ought. You see, friends, there is an oughtness to the Christian life. Once you come to know Christ, once you come to know the grace of God, once you're adopted into his family, once you become a member of God's household, there's an oughtness. There was an oughtness for my kids when they were living in my household. Because they bore my name. There is an oughtness for the people of God. Let me show you some examples, and I just picked a few. Luke 18, he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Duty, moral obligation. John 13, if I then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. You ought to serve one another, you ought to humble yourself before each other. Romans 12, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. So there is a way that you ought to think about yourself, and there is a way that you ought not think about yourself. Colossians 4, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. James 4, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. That's what Karen found herself saying about going to Puerto Rico. That's what I found myself. If the Lord wills, we'll go to... Well, the Lord did not will that we either of us go to Puerto Rico. And then you can rest there. But that's what you ought to say. 1 John 4, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Duty, moral obligation. James 3, from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so so there's another negative you see I, I i have to wonder if we tend to interpret the word ought as you might want to perhaps possibly maybe consider the possibility of considering the possibility maybe versus a strong sense of duty and moral obligation I wonder how our lives would be different if we took that word more seriously. If we were to give the word ought more weight. If our light factor, you know, you're the the light of the world, Jesus said. If our light factor would increase, if it would intensify the strength of the battery within us, In our flashlights, and we would shine brighter to the world if we took ought more seriously. Especially since all these things are thus to be dissolved. And then Peter lays down two words that are to characterize a Christian from the word ought. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? And so, point number two, he's telling us that we are to be people who are walking in holiness and godliness. Now, in using those two words together, bumping them up against each other, holiness and godliness, he might be distinguishing between external actions and behavior, holiness, and internal attitudes and reverence for God, godliness. Or he may just be intensifying what he's talking about. Holy, set apart. If something is holy, it is set apart for and dedicated for a purpose godly like god holiness godliness the word holy is an important word in your bible by the way 611 times you'll find it 431 in the old 180 in the new testament that's a lot We know that God and everything pertaining to God is holy, which means God is completely separated from sin, wickedness, and evil, and that he is devoted to the good and the honor of his own name, which is totally appropriate for God. Now, in the Old Testament, the tabernacle portrayed the holiness of God. It was a place separate from the sinfulness of the people of Israel. It was a place separate from the evil and sin of the world at large. The first room in the tabernacle, that first large section that you see up there on the screen, was called the holy place. It was dedicated to God's service. But then God instructed Moses that a veil was to separate the holy place from the most holy place, or the holy of holies, where you found the Ark of the Covenant. The holy of holies was most separated and most fully devoted to God's service. It was an image of the holiness of God, a reminder of the holiness of God for the people to always have before them. And then you read through the scriptures that wherever God dwelt was considered to be holy. Psalm 24, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? Psalm 99, exalt the Lord our God, worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy when God appeared to Moses on the mountain in the burning bush. Remember, Moses drew near and God stopped him. said, do not come near. Take your sandals off of your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Or Isaiah, when the prophet was given the vision of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, the train of his robe filled the temple above him stood the seraphim and one called to another and said holy 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 is the lord of hosts the whole earth is full of his glory And brothers and sisters we know that because God is holy he then calls for his people to be the same First Peter 1 we saw this several months ago as he who called you is holy you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now the question that needs to be asked by all of us as we live out our daily lives in practical terms, what does holiness look like practically for you this week? I want to introduce to you J.C. Ryle, because I'll be quoting rather extensively from him in this part of my message. I've referenced Ryle before. I think there's great value in in reading the dead guys. Um, And I would encourage you in that. These are individuals whose lives and works have tested the test of time. And there is much for us in our generation to learn from those who have gone before us. J.C. Ryle was a British, Anglican, evangelical pastor and bishop lived in the mid to late 1800s. He was known for his plain preaching. He just wanted to preach the Bible in a fashion that the average person could understand it very clearly. And then that was combined with a call to God's people to live very differently than the rest of the world. He wrote several books, including one that is titled, probably his best-known and most beloved book, simply, Holiness. Not the kind of title that probably draws very many people to pull it off the shelf today or to pull it up on Amazon, although I would highly commend this book to you to add to your personal library or to begin your library. You would benefit from reading it tremendously. A friend of mine and I are reading it together right now. We're both just thoroughly uh, being blessed by it. Now, in his preface... J.C. Ryle writes this. The older I grow, the more I am convinced that real practical holiness does not receive the attention it deserves and that there is a most painfully low standard of living among many high professors. That's not a university professor. That's someone who professes faith with their lips. Many high professors of religion in the land. He said, the question will not be how we talked and what we professed but how we lived and what we did. Now what's interesting to me is that apparently at that time in England there were some who were drawing very large crowds at what were referred to as higher life meetings or consecration meetings, big rallies. Ryle wrote, it is easy to get crowds together. And I would suggest that's still the same today. Now, these large gatherings were marked by, quote, sensational and exciting addresses or messages, loud singing, crowded tents, big crowds, the constant sight of strong semi-religious feeling in the faces of all around. You could look on people's faces and see tremendous emotion, public profession of experience. Ryle then said, All of this seems good at the time. After all, look at the crowds and look at the emotion. But then he said, Is the good real, deeply rooted, solid, and lasting? You see, there are a lot of really large gatherings going on around the world today in the name of Jesus. If J.C. Ryle were alive today, he would ask the exact same questions. Well, then, what is practical holiness? Because that's what Ryle's getting at. He's saying, I don't see holiness in all these crowds. I don't see holiness in the lives of the people once they leave these gatherings. So what is it? Well, he begins by saying what it's not. I'll give you just a condensed version. He says, it is not knowledge, nor great profession, nor doing many things, nor zeal for certain matters in religion, nor morality and outward respectability of conduct, nor taking pleasure in hearing preachers, nor keeping company with godly people. You see, you can can come to West Hills, be be with godly people, hear a sermon preached, and not be pursuing godliness and holiness. These things alone, says Ralph are not holiness. Well, then he describes what it is. This is so good. Holiness is the habit of being of one mind with God according as we find his mind described in Scripture. It is the habit, the habit of agreeing in God's judgment, hating what he hates, loving what he loves. Boy, that's just so simple. Holiness is hating what God hates, and loving what God loves and measuring everything in this world by the standard of his word. Then he concludes, a holy man will endeavor to shun every known sin and to keep every known commandment. He will have a decided bent of mind toward God, a hearty desire to do his will, a greater fear of displeasing him than of displeasing the world and a love to all his ways. A holy man will strive to be like our Lord Jesus Christ. You see why you need to read the book? Now, does holiness imply perfection in this life? No. You say, well, Gary, why is that? It sounds like you're moving us towards perfection. No. I want you to understand reality. Holiness does not eliminate the presence of indwelling sin. Romans 7, the Apostle Paul said, I do not do the good I want, the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. If I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. The Apostle Paul saw the law of sin and death working against another law in his life that was calling him to righteousness. So holiness does not imply perfection. Ryle writes about this. The gold will never be without some dross. The light will never shine without some clouds. The holiest men have many a blemish and defect when weighed in the balance. Their life is a continual warfare with sin, the world, and the devil. Sometimes you will see them not overcoming, but overcome. But still... For all this, I am sure that to have such a character as I have faintly drawn is the heart's desire and prayer of all true Christians. They press toward it. They may not attain to it, but they always aim at it. What sort of people ought we to be? We ought to be men and women and young people who with God's help are striving to live lives marked by godliness and holiness. Thirdly, Peter says that we are people who are waiting for the coming day. People who are waiting for the coming day, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, verse 12. Verse 13, according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth. So we are awaiting people. Wait upon the Lord. Now we're waiting for his coming. God's people wait with a genuine longing and anticipation of what we know, with a longing and anticipation of who we know that is going to come. Our daughter, Aaron, and her husband, Reed, who, by the way, grew up in this life, this youth group several years ago, they met each other in this youth group several years ago. They have a dog named Pip. It's a rescue dog, a little chihuahua. She's missing one of her back feet. They think she was probably abused or mistreated. She was very skittish when they first got her. But now she's really changed significantly because of her owners, which in and of itself is a pretty cool illustration that I just thought of. The same happens to us, under new ownership. But when Aaron, and Reed want, when Aaron and Reed come to visit, Pip always comes along. And when Aaron's in the house, and Pip loves Reed, but Pip adores Aaron. There's definitely a difference there. When Aaron's in the house, Pip always wants to know where Aaron is and often goes to that part of the house to be with Aaron. When Aaron leaves the house, Pip spends a good deal of time sitting on a stool... In our living room, where we have a pillow, where she can watch for Aaron to return. And with every car that approaches down our street, her ears go up, and she perks up her little head and watches, said, no, that's not Aaron. She puts her head back down. (laughs) But then, when at last it is Aaron driving in the driveway, Pip goes Ballistic. I mean, you have never seen so much anticipation and excitement bursting forth. When Aaron walks in the house, Pip is groaning and crying and squeaking and squealing and dancing around Aaron's feet with exuberant joy, and then Aaron picks her up, and Pip wants to get as close to Aaron's face as she can possibly get. And friends, it is like that every single time. Maybe the waiting of the Christian is supposed to in some way resemble the hopeful anticipation that this little dog expresses as she waits for her beloved master's return. And then her exuberant joy when she discovers that, yes, she hasn't forgotten me. In fact, she has come to get me. See, Peter says, we're waiting and that should be the waiting of God's people, waiting with anticipation. Peter adds another word here waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. What does that mean? Is Peter telling us that we, through our actions, are able to accelerate God's calendar, to accelerate the coming of the day of the Lord? I don't think that's what he means. I think the rest of Scripture tells us this. You see, if the coming of the day of God were dependent upon our faithfulness or lack thereof, it would mean that every generation of God's people prior to the generation at the time of Christ's return failed to get the job done. You see, friends, it is not as though the Father wanted to send the Son in the year 200 or the year 1200. Or the year 1600, but was not able to because God's people didn't do their work. It would also mean that we are ultimately in charge of the calendar and that we can control God's calendar. And the Bible teaches us clearly that's not the case either. Jesus told his disciples, Mark 13, concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the sun but only the father. So the father knows the day. The father knows the hour when he is going to tell the son it's time to return. Acts chapter 1, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority. So that day is fixed. You see, friends, you always want to allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. And Scripture says, God in His sovereignty has determined the day and the hour of our Lord's return. So then what does it mean that we are waiting for and hastening that day? Well, to hasten not only means to accelerate, it also means to advance, to press towards something, shake a leg, step on it. So from a human vantage point, we seek to advance the day of the Lord In our generation, as we press toward it, we are fighting the good fight of the faith. We are running the race like other generations before us. We're seeking to do our part to fulfill the preconditions of Christ's return by proclaiming the gospel, by calling people to faith and to repentance, by living our days before the face of God, and by making much of Christ, waiting for the coming day. And then lastly, Peter tells us here, what sort of people ought you to be? You ought to be people who are welcoming the prospect of a brand new earth. Verse 13, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now, as we know, I think you'd agree with me. The present heavens and the present earth are pretty incredible. In fact, when God first created them, he said, of of it all, it is very good. We know that the heavens still declare the glory of God. Just go outdoors, away from the city on a starry night, and look up at the sky. The heavens are declaring the glory of God, night after night after night, in every possible language that the world knows. We know that the whole earth is full of his glory, the Bible says. We know from Romans 1 that God's invisible attributes have been clearly perceived since the creation of the world in what God has made. You can, see, you can see the handiwork of God. And so the heavens and the earth as they are now still bring glory to God. Like a great painting by, a, by a, an artist or a great sculpture brings glory to the artist. But ever since the fall, the earth has been in turmoil. Not just humanity has been in turmoil. We know that, don't we? We know that humanity is in turmoil. All you have to do is watch the news or look at your own life. But creation has been in turmoil. Romans 8. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And so it is currently groaning. But the day is coming when it will be set free from its bondage to decay. And so all these words that Paul and Peter and the other writers of Scripture use, dissolve, burn, be set free, they convey the idea that God is going to bring about a cataclysmic transformation of the heavens and the earth. There's going to be a new earth in which righteousness dwells. I love that phrase that Peter tacks on. Because, friends, the world in its present condition is not marked by righteousness. The world in its present condition is marked by unrighteousness, ungodliness, unholiness. And all of the markings and trappings of unrighteousness, greed, covetousness, drunkenness, sexual immorality, perversions, new forms of evil being invented all the time, adultery, envy, hate... Revenge, deceit, lying, gossip, slander, pride, fighting, disobedience, foolishness, faithlessness, on and on it goes. And the new earth won't have any of those things. There will be a brand new earth. I don't know about you, but I find something very wonderful and energizing about taking something that's been abused and neglected and run down and damaged over time, and making it new again. I enjoy doing that. It was six years ago this summer that I was able to to do just that with our little cottage up in northern Michigan. It was a foreclosure that we purchased. It had been neglected and, and forgotten and left, and all the neighbors around kind of wondered what was going to happen to the little house. And so we picked it up. And all of my siblings thought I was absolutely nuts because they would walk around it. When I was in St. Louis, they would walk around it up in Michigan and say, what, it actually, what was Gary thinking? Well, my wife and I were trying to see what it could be if it was made new again. And we succeeded. A couple days ago, I listened to an interview of Bill Ford Jr., who essentially has the same vision only on a much 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 grander scale for the city of Detroit. And he wants the renovation to begin with the Detroit Railroad Station, which right now is in total disrepair. It has not been open since the mid 80s, and those pictures convey a little bit of what it currently looks like. But he has a vision for making it a brand new place where people will love to come and gather and, and have dinners together and Parties together. and Just a great new world for downtown Detroit. Now friends, you might bring renewal to a piece of furniture. Or a little cottage. People on grander scales bring renewal and transformation to cities. But think about this. God says, I'm going to make the earth brand new. Brand new. In which righteousness dwells. And where you find righteousness, you find peace. Where you find righteousness, you find no more war. Where you find righteousness, you find no more death. Where you find righteousness, you find no more relationships that are being torn apart. Where you find righteousness, you find healing. I want you to close your eyes. I want to read a couple of passages of Scripture just to remind you from God's Word what we who know the Lord are looking forward to and waiting for and anticipating And doing it in such a way that it will promote godliness and holiness in our lives and desire for those we know who do not know Jesus to be a part of this on that great day. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city, it has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day. There will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. Nothing unclean will ever ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Brothers and sisters, that is what we are waiting for. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, we who by your grace have come to know you as our Savior, we who are watching and waiting and seeking with your help to live our lives in godliness and holiness. We long for that day. In our best moments, we long for that day. Lord, we know that the years that you give us now are training us. We are to train ourselves in godliness. We are to put off those things that have to do with darkness. We are to put on those things that have to do with light and life. So I pray for myself. I pray for my brothers and sisters. Thank you, Father, for sending your son the first time. It is because of his first visit to our planet that we have forgiveness of our sin. It is because of his first visit that we know what love is. It is because of his first visit that we are now the people of God. And now, Lord, we wait. We anticipate his return. We long for his appearing. And yet, Lord, for as long as you choose for us to be here, may we live our days before the face of God in holiness and godliness, proclaiming the gospel, calling people to repentance and faith, showing people the love of Jesus. We do love you, Lord you thanks and praise and even as we observe the Lord's table today we do so with anticipation for that day when we will be with you we love you we praise you we pray in Christ's name God's people agreed by saying. Ushers, please come.